Hello, and welcome to Filling in the Gaps. I'm Justin. I'm Darren. Today, we are going to discuss a movie. We are going to be discussing Mulholland Drive. This is a movie written and directed by David Lynch that was released back in 2001. It stars Naomi Watts and a bunch of other people that we would recognize from other things we've done, even from some other movies we've talked about on the podcast. But I think your other big one would be Justin Throw. Yay! Leftovers. Yeah, exactly. Which and is why ja- I'm rolling my eyes, but they can't <laughs> see that. And Jacob from Lost. Yes. I did see him and I went, oh, I did not remember him being I didn't being remember in this. him being in but this either. This is another movie where it's been nearly... 20 years? 20 years. Now, I don't think I saw this one in the cinema. I think I did see this on a rental. Course. I did too, so it was probably 2000... Probably 2002, I would say, because it came out in October, I think. So in those days, six months later. So yeah, yeah, I probably didn't see it until then. As far as ratings, IMDb has an even 8.0, Metacritic at 85, and then Rotten Tomatoes has it uh, the critics at 83% and the audience at 87%. So fairly consistent. And the audience is 189,000 reviews. So people have really gone back and wanted to say something good about this one. It is two hours and 27 minutes long, though. It is long, but... And when I saw that, I was like, I don't remember it being this long. Watching it, time passed quick for me, man. I wouldn't say necessarily the same for me. I think that it is a movie that artistically can warrant this kind of time. David Lynch, oftentimes, whatever he wants, go ahead and give it to him. But there's going to be a lot of stuff that maybe doesn't really matter or isn't really important that gets thrown in there. I would have liked to have seen it just be maybe 10 minutes shorter. I think there are just a lot of times where people are just talking so slowly and deliberately. Yeah, everything's very deliberate and at its own pace. And it doesn't feel natural to me. It almost feels like we are purposely doing everything slowly and methodically. There's a part of me that that just didn't seem to work for on the second time through. I also didn't think that it was that long. I was shocked when I saw that runtime. Yeah, well, maybe you should watch the the TV pilot instead then. I've never seen it. I don't, at least uh, as far as I know. Yeah. It's, um... Is it exactly the same? It's, yeah, there's a... We'll definitely have to put a link in the description below for this one. Yeah, it's it's the same. Someone's put it up on YouTube. It's 90 minutes long. They've cut a lot. It basically, well, it basically ends pretty much when the wig gets put on for the first time. But it also has a lot of added scenes as well. There's a lot more scenes with, like, the detectives. Well, not a lot. There's a couple more scenes with with the detectives talking to each other. There's an, an extra scene with one of the guys who's right at the end of the movie. There's a phone call between Justin Theroux and that guy, which is absolutely pointless. It's kind of funny because... I think it was ABC. Hang on. Yeah, it was it was ABC who wanted it, and they were really like, "Oh, we're going to get another Twin Peaks," and so they shot the movie basically. And they've, they've reused everything. They've just repurposed the entire TV show and added some bits into it. But wait, so is it Naomi Watts? And... It's everybody. Okay, so they've literally taken the movie and made a TV version of it. No, they made a TV version of it and then made it into a movie. It was originally supposed to be a TV show. Mulholland Drive was supposed to be a TV show. And Actually, so, that makes a lot of sense. We'll get to that in the spoiler section. Right. That makes a lot of sense because there are a lot of things that seem to just happen and 
there's no follow-up. Right. And so basically ABC were called in and the guy watching it absolutely hated it. And so they canceled it immediately. And David Lynch was like, well, I like it. So I'm going to make it into a movie. So he found some people to fund it and and to make it into a an actual full, well, two and a half hour movie. Do you know if they had to do reshoots and extra shoots to fill out the extra time and to round out the story? I don't actually know, but from watching it... Because I'd be very shocked that... I mean, this movie would be rated R, so I'm very shocked that some of that stuff would have ever made it into an ABC pilot. Well, that's what I mean. So it, it, on YouTube, it's called the unaired ABC pilot. So it was never actually... It was only shown to executives. It never actually made television. Right, but that's what I'm saying is to make it into the movie... It seems like there are a few scenes that would have been... Oh, yeah. yeah. That never would have been recorded for TV because there's no way they could be shown. No. So, yeah, I think either they were already shot and then they made the cut to the video version or the, the video version, the movie version. Because, yeah, everything is pretty much shot for shot, but the, the quality of the pilot on YouTube is really bad. <laughs> well, it is also on YouTube. They probably recorded it on VHS the yeah, very first yeah, time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Especially if this came got, after... It's got the, the tracking lines yeah. and everything. If this came after Twin Peaks, then clearly some people would be ready for it. Right. And wanting to record it. I know that when I finally got around to Twin Peaks, I think I've said this before, it was after I mean, a decade or so after it had finished, right. and I was able to just get all the videotapes out of the library and watch through. And I was... But the first season, the whole first season, I watched each tape twice because I thought I might be missing something. And there's there's a lot of kind of red herrings and just extra David Lynch stuff that doesn't really matter to the overall story and doesn't really have a payoff. And I think that, again, there's some of that in Mulholland Drive. The music is, again, by Angelo Badalamenti. And he also acts in this one. Yeah. <laughs> which I didn't realize until I looked at the IMDb page. Yeah, me too. I looked at that and I was like, oh, he was one of the, what's that called? The Not the Luigi brothers, but... What Cast, was it? Uh, Castigliani brothers. Castigliani brothers, that's right. Yeah. I didn't know... But his, his character name is Luigi. Oh, that's right, right. Yeah. I didn't realize, though, that um, Angelo had also done... He's also done some game music. He did the game music for Fahrenheit Indigo Prophecy, which... I had no idea. <laughs> Which I've had in my library forever. Yeah, me too. I might go and play it now. And he did the music for Save Lost Children. Did we talk about that? I don't think so. I don't think we did. He did the music for Save Lost Children. So that was... Oh, like, I might have mentioned it. I might have mentioned it. Because his name would leap would out come, to me. After out. Twin Peaks, it, it leaps at me every time. Yeah. Yeah, he's very good. So I'm not surprised. Yeah, his IMDb page is stacked, man. Mulholland Drive as a movie is, it's going to, well, it's going to be very David Lynch. So there are going to be some very weird moments. There's going to be a very weird plot element that will make the movie very confusing. Overall, it's pretty well acted. It's very interesting, certainly visually interesting. Lynch always has visually interesting work. I would recommend it if you're into this type of movie. If you're not, it's it's a hard sell because yeah. it is going to be David Lynch. So there are going to be things that are confusing. There'll be some things that even after a second watch and even after we talk today, I probably still will not completely understand. And like I said, for you, it doesn't feel slow. For me, 
it does, but not in the way of, oh, there's a lot of wasted scenes that do nothing. Within each scene, there's a lot of getting into the scene, getting out of the scene, talking very slowly and deliberately in a way that just doesn't feel natural. I'm like, come on, pick up the pace, pick up the pace. <laughs> it also has this bad acting on purpose thing, which is right at the start of like the first quarter of the movie as well, which... Yeah, if you're watching it for the first time, you'd be like, why are these people acting so terribly? But then you get to the end, for me at least, you're like, oh, okay, now I understand. It's not that they're acting terribly, it's... Well, you can't say it now. So, <laughs> All right, so with that, I clearly, we need to get into the spoiler section before Darren starts giving it all away. So <laughs> if you've not seen Mulholland Drive, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you are going to like it. Or that you've already seen it, hopefully. I would hope, yeah. but if you haven't... You'll definitely want to watch it before you listen because we're going to give it all away. And there are some things that will surprise you. So with that, let's get into the spoiler section. All right. So the movie opens. Now, this is one scene. This is definitely one of the things I would cut completely if I could is the whole jitterbug scene at the beginning. which takes about <laughs> two minutes long. It's a long opening, man. <laughs> There's just all this swing music and people dancing there are some interesting visual things here with people being washed out in a spotlight ghostly appear and disappear you have people dancing and then sometimes the image of people that are dancing is juxtaposed inside of a silhouette of people dancing an old old 60s kind of effect that i used to see in like old metal bands when they would go on television they would Trying to do all these like psychedelic things with them, fade them in and out of the background and change the color palettes and stuff. But yeah, it is important because, well, she's the, the jitterbug champion, isn't she? But I don't think we needed five minutes of it. <laughs> it, it is two. I did check. It is two before we really get into the movie. Yeah, she is the champion, but even that's not really important. It's just not. It isn't. I- yeah, she could have just been anyone getting off a plane. Like, I want to be famous. Like, yeah. It is Hollywood. She's not going to some random place to be And she can famous. act as well. It's not like the Jitterbug champion automatically means that you can act. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're going to see someone sleeping in a bed after that. We will see a sign from a Holland Drive. And no surprise here, we're going to see a car driving at night. Hmm. I looked this up as well. No, I didn't look it up. I looked up the road, though, because I was like, oh, it's the same road from Lost Highway, I think. No, 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 the um, the curvy road, the Mulholland Drive road. I'm pretty sure they use that in Lost Highway with the guy like, go and buy a driver's manual. Oh, I thought you meant the, the night shot. No, 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 no. Like, I'm pretty sure that is the same road. It's very possible, yeah. But I looked it up and supposedly that road or that stretch of road is called the Snake. And it's supposedly a really notoriously dangerous bit of road because it's full of curves. It doesn't seem to have any barriers and a lot of people crash and die on that road. So, there you go. Stay off the snake. (laughs) We are going to see a woman in the back of a car. She is very upset that her driver has stopped. The driver turns with a gun, and another man walks outside of the car. He's about to approach the door, or he opens the door. Meanwhile, cut in shots of teenagers driving and being stupid. Mm -hmm. Probably especially dangerous on the snake. Yeah. (laughs) And no surprise here, one of the cars is going to crash into the one with the woman in it. As far as we know, the men die? Yeah. 
in the TV pilot, though, there's a little bit more information about them, which okay. which I kind of wanted more of as well because I like David Lynch's cops. They're always like weird robots. They're so bizarre, his detectives always. And the guy, I know that actor, the older guy. Yeah, Robert Forster, I think. All right, I've seen him in a dozen things. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff, and then I think he's another one that Quentin Tarantino brought back for a while. So ah, okay. I think he was in, was he in Jackie Brown, perhaps? Maybe, yeah. But I like that guy, and I wanted to see more of him. But in this cut, we only get to see them once. Yeah, and that definitely felt like we were missing out on something. Definitely, yeah. I mean, he even has a cool name. He's called Detective McKnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely wanted more of him, but clearly Cut. it's not going to be. Yeah. The woman is going to stumble away. She has a... I don't think we see it in this part, but later we'll see blood on her head. I don't think it's any surprise that she's going to have amnesia, right? This seems like <laughs> classic Hollywood. Oh, I'm in a car crash and I'm stumbling. I have amnesia. Yeah. Immediately, immediately, and I remember watching this for the first time, and I just kind of threw my hands up in the air. I'm like, all right, this isn't real, because everyone in that is absolutely massacred, but she somehow just walks away from it. Well, I will say this. It was a head-on collision, and she's in the back of a limo. Yeah. So I think that it is quite possible that she would be okay. Well, I don't. <laughs> I definitely don't, man. But yeah, this is my first flag. I'm like, okay, this is definitely a David Lynch movie. <laughs> There's some weird stuff about to happen because this woman is either not real or, uh, yeah, there's something. There's already something going on. I do think the fact that she runs to Sunset Boulevard is done on purpose. I think that may be a reference to Sunset Boulevard, the movie. I've never seen that. I've heard about it. It's an old movie, though, yeah? Is it? Yes. Billy Wilder, fantastic movie. Highly recommend it. Yeah, it, it is very good, but it is very much a movie of its day. But I think that it still holds up because it's meant to be a movie about that day. It's kind of like... Sorry, what's it about? Because I, I honestly get no idea about it. Sunset Boulevard, at its core, there are two main characters. You have a younger man who's trying to take advantage of an older woman... The older woman was very famous as an actress before sound. Oh, okay. And she's never quite gotten that fame back once that happens. So she has money, but it's very much a movie about Hollywood and the way people love you when you're popular, when you're famous, and then they ignore you once you're not. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, then definitely I would agree with that probably be a tie into this movie then for sure it definitely feels like it fits she is going to hide from a laughing couple and we're going to find out that she just falls asleep here behind this bush yeah the cops are investigating the car crash they find pearl jewelry so this indicates that it probably wasn't the teenagers yeah and there's probably or somebody the, or the guys missing. right <laughs> and yeah this is a great scene but it kind of goes nowhere because we never see these detectives again. No. <laughs> Which felt so weird this time. The first time, I didn't notice it. It just kind of washed over me. But this time, when I'm really paying attention and I know I'm going to have to talk about it, I'm really focused. I'm going, when are those guys coming back <laughs> yeah, again? Yeah. The answer is pretty much never. The woman will wake up as an older woman with red hair is getting suitcases taken to her car. Well, not to her car, to a taxi. And the woman is going to run into the apartment and hide. 
She's very clever. <laughs> we now go to Winky's Diner, which is, this whole thing is another thing that just goes nowhere. And this, honestly, I would probably cut. Oh, I definitely would not cut this part. I, <laughs> I love this part. And yeah. I love I love this guy. He's only, this, There's like three people from Lost in this movie. This guy's also in Lost, Patrick Fischler. The guy, the, the guy that's like, I guess he's the patient of, is he, I've just had him as a patient of a doctor. Like, that's what I've put them down as. Like, it's a ther- it looks to me like a therapy session in Winkies. As far as I know, they're just friends. I have no idea what it is. And that's part of the problem. Mm. Yeah. We're at Winkies on Sunset Boulevard. The two men are talking. The man you're talking about, he goes on about this dream that was so scary because the other man was standing at the counter and there's this man looking in the back and if I, I I just wouldn't ever want to see his face it was so scary so they're gonna end up going to the back they see a hobo the first man passes out whoa, 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 whoa. they don't just see a hobo they see a terrifying really the devil almost man this got me again the first time I saw this I crapped my pants <laughs> it scared me to death you're such a wimp when it comes to jump scares look oh, it just you get a immediately jump cut to the face. It's just really black. It's just dirty. That's all it is. There's nothing else to it. It's terrifying, man. It's terrifying. I don't like this. Well, don't go into the alleyway behind <laughs> Winkies then, I guess. <laughs> That's the rule here. See, I would totally cut it because it doesn't go anywhere. We see the guy again at the end, the dreamer at the end, standing at the counter. But that's it. Unless that really connects somehow. I mean, I think it's important for the theme of, like, just, you've said the word, like, three times now as well. Dream, dream, dream. Hollywood dream, this dream, her dream. It's a movie about dreams. Yeah, but this dream goes nowhere. This dream is pointless. We don't need... The hobo has the box, though, at the end. That's very important to the whole movie. All right, well, we'll have to get to that because I don't see that connection. Okay. That just seemed like a Lynch random bit of, ooh... The hobo has the box. What? Where did that come from? So, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. We haven't even gotten to the box yet. <laughs> so, Patrick Fischler here, I think, dies of fright. Cause I mean, maybe. I think like, he checks his, ar- his carotid artery and he's like, oh, oh, Jesus, or something like that. He says, like, oh, my. or But he doesn't say, oh, he's dead. He no, he doesn't say he's dead. He doesn't call an ambulance. But he definitely says, like, oh, man, or something like that. It's like, yeah, I think the guy got scared to death. So, I, I, I think this scene is very important. And dream again, this is screaming out to me that dreams are very important to this movie. But if that's the case, I also don't want it because I don't want Well, you don't like dreams. I <laughs> I like dreams, but I don't like when a movie tries to convince us that something is real and then we find out it's a dream. I also don't want the movie to blatantly say Hey, this movie's about a dream, if that's what it's about. But so that, I'm gonna I'm gonna err not- on the side of that's not it. But it's not saying blatantly that. It's just one. But if that's the only purpose of the scene, and you can't cut it because of that, then it is. Then that's what it's there for. But you didn't see it that way. So, right. therefore, the movie still stands for I'm, you. I'm trying to give it the benefit of the doubt and not see it that <laughs> way. So I think that when we get to the end, you and I are going to have very different theories going <laughs> Probably. We are going to see a man in a wooden wheelchair in a brown curtain room. Oh, is this already? Right, okay. Yes, because he's going to make a phone call. This man is Mr. Roke. Mr. Roke is played by Michael Anderson, who you will know from Twin Peaks as the man from another place. But instead of red curtains, this time he gets brown curtains. (laughs) (laughs) 
And amazingly, he doesn't really say much in this whole movie. He says a lot just by being there and the way that other people react to him and the clear fear that they have when they're around him. He is going to make a call. He is going... Oh, sorry. He, I think, receives a call that says that the woman is still missing. Oh, no. He's making that call because the next person, we only see the back of their head, calls another person. That's right. In like a dirty, beat-up apartment, which, again, we only see their arm. And they just say, the same. And then (laughs) that's kind of it. So there's this whole mystery about what's going on there. This one is not a mystery by the end, by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a mystery at this point when you're watching. Yeah. Naomi Watts will arrive in town with who I originally thought was her family, but it's just some random old couple she met on the plane, I guess. The telephone, though, you missed one more. They call someone else eventually, and there's an ashtray next to a red lampshade. That okay. that red lampshade is the bedroom of Diane later on, so they're actually calling her. Okay. That that guy's calling Diane. So Oh. You didn't notice that. I I must have missed it. Yeah. The, the the bedroom. It's it's almost well, I, it's almost the same bedroom from Lost Highway, to be honest. Yeah. So the, the red lampshade, that that ashtray, that's you, we get to see that again later on in the movie. So yeah, that chain of telephone calls actually ends with that last guy calling Diane and saying it's not finished. Right. Okay. So she arrives. We are going to know her at the beginning of the movie and for most of the movie as Betty. Mm -hmm. Betty is the niece of the red-haired woman. She's coming to Hollywood from Canada to start her film career. And apparently her aunt actually has Hollywood connections, which is why she gets the first audition and why they treat her overly nice. Because I was going, why are they... There's no way they would do this kind of audition for some nobody. But then... You find out, oh, her aunt has connections, and that's why she does. This couple, we will see in the back of a limo, and they're just creepily happy. (laughs) That's so weird. That's, That's Lynch, for sure. We are going to see Betty moving into the apartment, looking around. This is another part that, yeah, it's a nice apartment, and yes, she's in awe of it, and I appreciate that. I appreciate all of it. But I don't need to see her walk into every room. (laughs) Check every drawer. (laughs) Yeah. And then see her in the bathroom and, like, looking in the mirror for a long time before she realizes there's somebody in the shower. Yeah. (laughs) Betty naively assumes that the woman in the shower must be a friend of her aunt's and so tries to be really nice to her and help her out. I guess I did skip the part with Coco, the very heavily made up and dressed up apartment manager, runner, whatever. Yeah, she's... Yeah, very made up. She does look like Coco the Clown kind of thing. I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) She is an actress that was more, again, kind of classic Hollywood. I recognize her from something, but I don't know what. There's a whole scene with her getting upset that there's poop on the sidewalk. (laughs) Doesn't go anywhere. It's okay. I guess it makes it feel a bit more real. But again, do we need it? I don't know. (laughs) Apparently... Coco knows her tenants very well, though, and I think that that's part of why that scene might be there. She knows everyone very well. She knows Ruth very well. I mean, so later in the movie, she's going to say she got a call from Ruth who's worried, who's concerned, everything. So Coco, I find to be a very interesting character. How little she's in the movie, but how important she is to some of the scenes. And you can't really get rid of her without altering the movie. 
So I do find her to be very interesting in, in that respect. When the woman who was hiding, when she gets out of the shower, she's going to see a Rita Hayworth poster. And so she's going to adopt the name Rita. The next scene that I have in my notes is the big one at Ryan Entertainment. <laughs> yeah, when I was watching this again last night, I was like, as soon as they cut to this scene, I was like, oh man, I totally remember this part because it's the coffee scene. This is, <laughs> yes. So this is a very weird business meeting. We have a director and his agent, I'm assuming. We have two other people who are maybe producers. I'm not sure what their job is. They're very concerned about pleasing both sides. Yeah. Yeah. And especially the one guy who is notoriously hard to please. And what these other two guys come in, Dan Hedea and Angelo Badalamente as the yeah. Castiglione brothers. brothers yeah. yeah. Which immediately is like a name you just don't want to mess with. You yeah. <laughs> certainly wouldn't take a golf club to anyone's car who was called the Stiglione brothers or right. the Castiglione brothers. Luigi and Vincenzo. We do get everybody's name here really quickly, but that fits because this is a, a meeting. business meeting, yeah. yeah. I like I like Dan Hedea in well, he's in he's in usual many suspects. Things. Yeah, usual suspects. That's where I remember him from. Yeah, he's one of those actors that you just once you start looking at his IMDb page, you realize like he's been in everything. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, played by Justin Thoreau, famous for the leftovers. Famous for his cousin Louis. What? I mean, that's, I mean, I knew Louis before I knew Adam. I mean, Adam, I knew, I knew Louis before I knew Justin, for sure. Wait, wait are you being serious? Are you... It's his cousin. Oh, it? I thought you were just making that No, no, up. it's like, okay. Justin Thoreau is Louis Thoreau's cousin. Oh, okay. All right. No, I thought you were just Oh, no, no, no I'm not doing a goof. <laughs> okay. These brothers are going to insist that Camilla Rhodes is cast for the role. And this seems very, very important. Adam is not happy with this at all doesn't want that. He wants complete control and doesn't like to be threatened, I guess. The hard-to-please brother is given an espresso. He hates it, spits it out. I just love the way he says napkin. <laughs> this cracks me up every time I see it. It's so funny. Napkin. <laughs> He's so annoyed. He's just, look, this guy's just this ball of rage. It's, it's brilliant. The whole thing is being watched by Mr. Roke in his brown curtain room. At the end, uh, Vincenzo says, this movie is no longer yours, to which afterwards, Adam, as you said, decides to take a golf club to their windshield. Yeah, and then heroically run away <laughs> into his Porsche. Well, what would you expect him to do? <laughs> Hang around? Yeah. After this, a man nervously talks to Mr. Roke through a glass wall. So within this brown curtain room, there's just a huge glass wall and then intercom of some sort so that he can talk he's very nervous so again this is the scene where i think this most emphasizes the power mr roke must have a man in an ancient wooden wheelchair who physically is not imposing at all and we know from more from twin peaks than from this one he's not very tall he's not an imposing figure at all but the way this man acts proves that he has a lot of power yeah. and i love that dynamic and i love the way that it works here and he doesn't have to speak a lot yeah they seem to just like use him as like some kind of rosetta stone and they just interpret his actions or his one word that he says i think it's the kind of thing where you better say the right thing he will speak if you say the wrong right thing. yeah 
<laughs> so this guy seems to get away basically by saying that the whole movie is going to shut down. It's time to shut down the movie. We're going to see now another new scene. So again, this is where it would fit well as a pilot where we're going to see more of these guys. Of stuff that yeah. we'll get to see later on, yeah. But no, we're going to again be introduced to new characters, <laughs> these two new characters, two men talking about some stupid story that's supposed to be funny, but we've missed the story, so oh, yeah. them laughing about it for a two minutes. A car accident. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> them laughing about it for two minutes is just too much. Joe, who is our killer, played by Mark Pellegrino, you know um, Jacob from Lost. He's also the guy from Big Lebowski. I think he's he's the guy that goes to the dude's house and like puts his head in the toilet, picks up the bowling ball and drops it. He's like, isn't this guy supposed to be rich? Yeah, so he's he's that guy as well, the stoner kind of. Uh, so he kind of plays a thug in yeah, yeah, both yeah. of these. Yeah. He's going to end up shooting... I love this scene. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> it goes a little long. It's a bit far. Again, I think this is the type of thing that would work better in a TV show as opposed to right. a movie. Because this this scene just has a tone that doesn't really fit the rest of the movie. I think, And again, maybe in the end we can talk about that, but I think there's a reason for that. Here's a bit of uh, trivia for you, though. Who's the janitor vacuum cleaner guy? I didn't look him up. He's Michael J. Fox's stunt double. Okay. Great. <laughs> and he is like really huge in, uh, uh, he's, he's like a big stunt coordinator. If you just check out his IMD page, he's done stunts for basically every single movie that you've seen. Uh, but yeah, he's Michael J. Fox's stunt double. I don't know why he's in here, but there he is. There's one for the, the pub trivia night. <laughs> he's going to shoot the man basically because he wants this book full of phone numbers. It's a huge book as well. A lot of bad people. But is it a lot of bad people, or is it just all people? I took it to be that That would be a phone book, Justin. (laughs) No, no, no. But this is all the unlisted actors' phone numbers. Like, that's what I thought it was. Oh, I thought it was like a gangster. I mean, it's a literal black book. I mean, yeah, I thought it was a gangster with unpaid debts, favors to ask. It's like a... I took it as a mafia black book. It could be. I think that might have been something in the show. They might have done more, but... In the movie, we just take it as it is. And again, yeah, there's no real reason. that This book never appears again. There is no need for the book. It does appear. I mean, he I mean, has it later, he's but he's not it. using it. Yeah. So we don't know what the point of the book is or why it's here. You could skip this one, too, if yeah. you really wanted to. But it is a very entertaining scene, though. Yeah. And so, yeah, I wouldn't want to get rid of it just because... This is probably the most fun of the entire movie. I laughed out loud at this properly, yeah. (laughs) This frame job, he's going to try and frame it to look like he killed himself. And then I think he accidentally pulls the trigger, which goes through the flimsy wall, hits the neighbor. Yeah. When he goes to confront her, she says, oh, I've been bitten by something. (laughs) (laughs) And he could have let it go. Yeah. But he doesn't want any loose ends. So he's dragging her out to put her in the other room. And the cleaner is just staring at him. Yeah. He's like, oh, I need help. I need help. <laughs> yeah. Come help Come me. Come help me. Dial the number. Get the hospital. So then he shoots her, shoots the cleaner, shoots the vacuum cleaner. I don't know why he shoots that. I mean, that's just pure comedy effect as well. Because <laughs> he shoots the vacuum cleaner, which then hisses and lets off some smoke, which then sets off the fire alarm. So that makes it look like this man he was joking around with before decided to kill the woman and the cleaner at the same time and the vacuum cleaner and himself and himself (laughs) 
I imagine, again, since you've told me it's a show, it makes more sense because that would lead to the detectives trying to follow this up. But in the movie, it's not important to the movie, so it gets left out. Betty is now talking to... Oh, no, she's actually talking to her Aunt Ruth. And she's finding out that Rita is a stranger, that Ruth doesn't know her. They look in Rita's purse after she confesses she has amnesia. And there are stacks of hundreds in there and a strange triangular blue key. The killer, Joe, from before, and some guy talk to a woman about new girls in the street. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the hooker. Yeah. Does this relate to anything? I think, well, because he's looking for Camilla. Okay. And so he's asking the street girl if there's been any new girls on the street. So I just... Doing a bit of detective work of his own, I guess. Okay. I guess I could see that, but you would never get that the first time through. Uh, I can't comment because... Right. I just... (laughs) It has no relevance to anything at this point. So... I mean... I I I just don't see how... By the end of the movie, though, it's quite clear, I think. See, I, I, I didn't think so because I still thought this might just be some other thing he's doing. Because we didn't know what the book really had to do with anything. We didn't know what this had to do with anything. So, I guess you're saying that... Camilla might have been hiding out as a woman in the street. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Or he's just he's just looking for people on on Sunset Boulevard. I guess I just feel like this is another area where we could be given something a bit more concrete to actually give us an idea of what the scene is or why it's important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Adam, Adam is driving home, takes a call from Cynthia, who basically says everybody's been fired. So he knows that the movie is not his, as they threatened. He is going to find his wife, Lorraine, in bed with a pool cleaner, who struck said Gene Clean. So in my notes, I just keep referring to him as Gene Clean. Gene Clean is the most passive man ever (laughs) until he decides to fight. But yeah, he's just super passive and... Just forget what you saw. Forget what you saw. It's best that way. And then he's, I think, later trying to say... Hey, it's not that big of a deal. It's okay. But yeah, he's just such a, a lynch character to me. <laughs> Adam is going to pour paint all over her jewelry, which is why he'll be covered in pink paint for most of the rest of the movie. I never really got that part either. Just put it in paint thinner and then it'll wash off. It's not really going to damage gold by painting it, is it? Adam doesn't think things through. Yeah, obviously. And neither does Lorraine. And neither really does Gene Clean. Uh, Gene Clean is going to knock Adam out, and he's going to throw him out. And then we're back to Rita and Betty, who are hiding the money and the key in the closet. They use a payphone because they just want to check to see if any accidents happened on Mulholland Drive, because it's one of the few things that Rita remembers. They end up going to Winkies, their waitress has a name tag on it that says Diane, which reminds Rita of a name, Diane Selwyn, a name we're going to hear a lot and is very important to the rest of the movie. They're going to look her up in a phone book and call the number, but the voice is not Rita's. Next, a huge thug goes to Adam's house looking for Adam. He's a big guy. He is huge. (laughs) He's so huge that Lorraine is climbing on top of his shoulders and he doesn't even really notice. It would be if a fly landed on mine, it would be the same. Yeah. He just doesn't really notice. It isn't until Gene Clean comes out and decides to try to fight him. And the guy just... Dags him in one punch. 
pretty much takes Lorraine out the same way. Yeah. And then we never see him again, which is kind of sad. He's a character <laughs> I want to follow more. <laughs> Adam is staying in some, I think it's a dodgy motel, but it might actually be backstage of the theater. Because Cookie, who runs the place, is also apparently running the theater or part of the theater. Yeah, who knows? He's still covered. Adam is still covered in paint. And Cookie's saying, oh, uh, your credit card. There's a problem with your credit card. He's like, I paid you in cash. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a problem with your cash, too. <laughs> <laughs> so you get definitely the idea that the brothers or somebody in this whole shadowy syndicate has confronted Cookie and said, you need to give Adam this message and you need to kick him out. Yeah. He is going to receive a call from Cynthia. Adam finds out that he is broke, even though he shouldn't be. And she is, she has a message of Jason says you should meet the cowboy, which fine. The cowboy, that's a very David Lynch kind of character. This is a very David Lynch kind of message. But my thing was, who's Jason? <laughs> I think Jason, I think we do get to meet Jason. He's the, he's his, the stagehand or whatever you call it, the director's assistant. He's the guy that he always talks to, like, Jason, get these guys out of here. Or, yeah, he's the guy. Okay. <laughs> Betty and Rita plan to visit Diane's place. There's an older woman called Louise who knocks on the door. She says, someone's in trouble. Someone's in trouble. But Coco's going to appear, say, oh, sorry. Let me get rid of her. Get rid of her, yeah. Yeah. Because Louise also has another problem with somebody being in her place that she doesn't want again. So, again... Coco is a very interesting character in the fact that she knows her tenants this well and her tenants trust her this well. But this will come into play a little bit later when Coco will say, oh, Louise is, she can be wrong, but she can also be very right about these kind of predictions. So it's kind of a warning. Yeah. She also, in that, she says, what's your name? I'm Betty. And she says, oh, Betty is not your name. So this is a huge clue as to what's going to happen later. We are going to see, yet again, a car drives at night. Adam is going to arrive at this corral in the middle of the city? At the uh, top I mean, of a mountain? I don't know. Mountain, I think, yeah. He's still covered in the paint. The cowboy talks about a person's attitude dictating their fate. The cowboy says the movie will go ahead if Adam does cast the woman from the photo from the meeting, who, if we paid attention, is Camilla Rhodes. Yeah. If you didn't catch the name just from looking at the picture before... It would be harder to keep track of that. Yeah. Yeah, the cowboy scene, I don't know how Lynch does this, but he can get like just an actor to be so creepy just by saying normal things. The, the cowboy's delivery of this whole little monologue that he gives is is really good and it's it's super, super creepy and it's got a lot of gravity to it. I I really like this scene a lot, even though the first time I was watching it, I was probably like, what's going on? Is this guy... Because basically, he appears out of nowhere as well. It's like the light goes on and boom, there he is. So like, is this guy the devil? It's like, who, who is this guy supposed to represent? Yeah, that, the, I, like, I like the cowboy. He says, you will see me one more time if you do what I want, and two more times if you don't. Right. Fade to black. Hollywood sign stock image. I don't know why we, we need this kind of stock video here, but okay. Then we go to Rita and Betty, who are rehearsing their lines. There's a bait and switch here where it looks like they're having a conversation that's very heated, but it's just them acting. Yeah, just rehearsing her lines. This is the part then after this where Coco is going to confront Betty, saying that Rita shouldn't be there and Ruth doesn't want her there, but does say, I'll let you try and figure this out. 
you're coming from a good place, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but you need to sort it out. This is right after this, where the super friendly audition happens. It's very creepy and very weird. But this is a great scene as well. This is a, and, and I think a really important scene for the whole movie. Super important. First of all, I love how it's completely different from how they rehearsed it in the kitchen. It, it's completely flipped on its head. Well, I think that part of that has to do with what the actor she's working with says. I don't want it to be like what every other person did. Do something different. Yeah. And the way that he explains it sounds exactly like the way she had just rehearsed it. So yeah. she realizes she has to do something different. But doing it this way, wow. Yeah, yeah. Naomi Watts can act and she does it in this. And this is like, this is like, I would say like a turning point for the entire film as well, in my opinion. Because once we, well, I'll say this now because I might forget it at the end. But basically, we know that Camilla got this part over Diane. And I think that the way that they acted it in the kitchen was the way that Diane acted it originally. But the way that we we're seeing it now is probably how Camilla acted it. But like I said, I think everything up until up until this point and beyond is part of Diane's fantasy and is a dream. And this is her reimagining of events entirely up, up until this point and, and, and beyond. Yeah, this scene is not only just tells you about the movie and the, the kind of the dream world versus the real world versus what's going on in her mind versus what actually happened. But also just for the movie itself, like when you notice at the beginning, the whole airport scene is so cheesy. And I didn't notice it the first time, but this time I did. And I, I took a note of it saying, are they doing this in post? Like the lip sync doesn't line up with them talking to each other, like the old grandmother woman. It's really cheesy. It's very daytime television. It's got that moonlighting, hazy, what's that called? It's like the, the hazy focus thing. And the acting is terrible. And again, this is one of these things that we've talked about before. Terrible acting on purpose. We talked about it with Synecdoche as well. And I think they're doing it on purpose here. Because at this point where we get to this interview, all of that bad acting was for a reason. And it really, I don't know, juxtaposes this scene where it's like full on proper acting. And it, it's a long scene. It's a very uncomfortable scene for me as well. Like you said, it's quite creepy. But all of those things combined, the movie, the characters, the story, it was all for a reason. And yeah, that's my take on that. I like this scene. I think it's really important. Okay, so that's your take. I do think it's important, but I think it's important for different reasons. One, this is why she's here. It does prove that Ruth had connections. So she wasn't just coming here on a whim. She wasn't coming... Well, maybe she did, but she had the connections to actually get in. Mm -hmm. Whereas... When I first saw her get off the plane, even this time, like it's been so long since I watched it, I just assumed she was some naive person coming in like so many do to Hollywood and I'm going to be famous. Yeah. But really, she actually has a, a strong connection here. So much so that even after, uh, well, <laughs> we do need to talk about Wally Brown, the man uh, in the sweater. Right. This is Frank from Return of the Living Dead. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> not a place to know. Okay. Uh, see, I thought that you would have <laughs> caught that one. So there's there's your trivia for that one. He, and he's been a lot of other stuff as well. I thought that this was quite important because of one, she's getting her interview. We see that she did have the connection, but also because this is the scene that leads. So she gets out of the room with casting Wally agents. Brown's casting director, whatever, and she's like, "Oh, Wally's washed up." Let me take you to somebody who actually is still happening and still has yeah. possibility. And so takes her to the set of Adam's movie. So this is the connection. Adam looks at her 
and there's a lot of this close-up of their eyes looking at each other, but I didn't know what to make of it. I just took it as he sees her and he realizes, no, this is the girl, not the one that I'm looking at right now. Wait, is that when the Camilla version comes on? or is Yeah, that, so there's a whole... There's a whole bit before that where there's another singer... Well, who's... yeah, so throughout the whole thing, she's there. So uh, yeah. she comes in, there are like four singers, and he said, okay, you guys go. And he seems to really like this actress as well. Yeah, but then the next one to come in is Camilla Rhodes. Right. But Camilla Rhodes, in this instance, is played by Melissa George, who you will recognize as Jess from Triangle. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it is. <laughs> this is part of where the movie becomes very weird for me, and I still am trying to wrap my head around it. But I can't get to that until we get to that part of the story. Okay. So, she auditions. He, Adam, has the two guys come up and say, well, what do you say? Mm. And Adam goes, yeah, this is the girl. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's... Taking it on so that he can... I mean, they said, basically, you can hire anybody you want, do anything you want, but you have to hire her. So he's taken her on so that he can actually make his movie. Betty realizes the time, but also seems to be creeped out by Adam and runs out so she can meet up with Rita so they can... Uh, I think this is where we're, they're going to go to Diane's apartment. apartment, right? They get to the house. Camilla Rhodes, as we've seen her, played by Melissa George is being put into a, a car or a limo by some guy in a suit with sunglasses. They look for number 12. Number 12 is, it says it's Selwyn, but actually she and some other woman swapped apartments for some reason. Yeah. And so now they're going to go to number 17, which is where Diane actually lives. Betty is going to sneak in to a window, even though I always find this part really weird. We're going to sneak in even though that neighbor is going to come over in like two minutes. Yeah. She's like, go there and I'll be right there. They don't wait and do it later. They do it now? Yeah. <laughs> but fine, whatever. So she gets help pushed into the window. She opens up the door. They go in and they end up finding a, a very body. Decayed yeah, because they're, they're holding their nose because it smells so bad. Yeah. As they run out, we see them both in a kind of tricky double image. Very important because we're going to find out that these characters are actually other characters as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, David Lynch likes his body swapping, that's for sure. Which, if you had watched Twin Peaks, you wouldn't necessarily know exactly what's going on. You know something's going on, both Lynch, it, it could kind of be anything. So, who knows? They're going to cut and dye a wig for Rita to wear. So, it's blonde and it looks very much like Betty's hair. We're going to have a scene where they get in bed together. They're going to kiss and more. It, it seems to come out of nowhere, but... Yeah, it does. It's like, hey, don't, don't, you don't have to sleep on the couch. Just sleep in here. Oh, sure thing. Just completely naked gets into yeah. bed. <laughs> Here's where I really have a problem with this, though, is after this bit, there's a part where Betty says over and over that she's in love with Rita. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yeah. But... As we've got it in the movie thus far, Betty, you don't know who she is. She doesn't even know who she is. And you've only known her for like... Two days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, no, it's too much. Now, it makes a bit more sense when we get to the end. But does it, though? Because would she have those memories? That's... It's, it's a very weird part. And I'm not sure that it really works for me. But it depends on, I suppose, how you interpret it. 
Rita in the night just starts saying Silencio. So yeah. they end up getting up at 2 a.m. and going to the Silencio Theater. The theater is partially full, even though it's 2 a.m. There's an actor on stage saying, We have no band, but there is one if you can imagine it. There's no trumpet, but you can hear the trumpet. But then he says, There is no trumpet, but then the man with the trumpet is standing right there. <laughs> but then the man with the trumpet takes the trumpet away and the trumpet's still playing. That's the whole point. It's like, it's a recording. It's, it's not real. That's what he says, but... Well, he doesn't have it to his mouth. He takes it away and the trumpet's still playing. <laughs> so, yeah. And this is, I, I, again, I like the scene because it's really important to the whole movie. It's like, everything is a recording. Nothing is real. We're all just passively watching something that's not actually a dream. It's, yeah. Yeah, I still, I still don't see it that way. But are you saying... See, what, one of the things I thought was this is a meta conversation happening to us, the viewer. And that he's... I think it is as well. Okay. I definitely think that too. And that artistically I like. And I do appreciate that. Though I didn't really need the full... Uh, the song? Yeah, the Spanish version of Crying. Yeah, I didn't need that either. I mean, it goes very long. I mean, she is a real singer. So I think that it doesn't sound bad. Like, it sounds good. No, it sounds great. But, but it just stops the movie dead at this point. <laughs> It does. Or they could have had other things happening. I mean, they do have other things happening while it's going on. So they're basically both breaking down into tears. Right. But that's also, that's very much on the nose and is too much for me. We're going to sing a song called Crying, and then we're going to have people crying. Well, to be honest, I had no idea. I mean, you must have looked that up because unless your Spanish is really good. (laughs) Well, yeah, Yorando is crying, but also... If you've heard the song Crying. Yeah, no, I, I I would never have made that connection. It was just a song. I don't even know what language that is. Is it Spanish? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if it was Spanish or Portuguese or something like that. But yeah, it's a song in Spanish. They seem to understand it. This is a very classic song. Like, it would be very popular. So that's, it's not a hidden gem of a song. Right. What's that tune? Oh, yeah, I know that tune. Yeah. It, yeah no, I, pff, yeah. Maybe it's more. Who, who, who sings uh, the original? Roy or- Orbison. Oh, okay. So and then it's been covered many times as well. Yeah, yeah. Because Lynch has a thing for Roy Orbison, I think. But this is where we get the the blue key and the blue everything. There's well, so much blue in here. The singer collapses and is carried off stage. I don't know why we needed. Who's that. not the same singer though? Did you notice that, or is that just my eyes playing tricks on me? It's possible. I wasn't. I was probably writing notes at that moment. Because like once I saw her fall, I was like, what is, what is going? The on? woman who comes on stage <laughs> versus the woman who's actually singing. Are two different people, as far as I can see. It would make sense. And then given the woman who's collapsed is back to that original woman. So it's it like, would make sense given the way that the movie is working. Right. So yeah, this is where we get the woman with like the weird blue hair. Yeah. We get the blue key. We get the blue flash of lightning, which then sends Naomi Watts into like some kind of seizure. Yeah, but why is the blue box in the purse at this point? It seems just very Lynch. random. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because um, Lynch. Yeah. We are going to go to the apartment. The blue key opens the blue box. Betty is not there when the box is opened. Yeah, that's weird because I th- I felt like who went into the box? Did we go into the box as viewers or did Betty go into the box? See, I more want to think that we went into the box and that nobody went into the box. I think something came out of the box. Maybe memories came out of the box. I'm not really sure. I'll have to get into my... My really weak theory. <laughs> I'm sure your dream theory holds up much better than mine. Yeah, so we go into the box completely. It's black. 
Then we are going to see Aunt Ruth appear, but the room is completely empty now, as though no one had ever been here. We see cuts of black with images that kind of get interposed. The cowboy walks up. I think he says, pretty girl. Time to wake up. The girl is Betty, at least as we've known her. Oh, that's what he says. Yeah, he says, Diane. Yeah, time to wake up. Pretty girl, Diane, or something like that. I think he just says pretty girl, but she is in the same position on the bed as Diane was The dead body of Diane, yeah. Yeah. The neighbor comes over for some stuff. She calls Naomi Watts. She calls her Diane. Twice. (laughs) Just to make sure. To make sure. Double sure. Yeah. So she is now Diane. There is a blue key sitting on the, like, coffee table, which we zoom in on, and she's clearly looking at. So we know that it's important to Diane. But this is just a regular door key, so it's not to be confused with the other key. Or maybe it is because it's blue. I'm not sure. Because it's not even the same key. No, no it's completely... This is just like a normal door key. This is a normal key, key but the other, the other one, one is like this weird triangle Futuristic thing. triangle key, yeah. yeah. The neighbor is going to say the detectives were looking for Diane. Diane turns and then is happy because Camilla is there. But Camilla is not played by Melissa George now. Camilla is now played by the same actress who was Rita before. She's happy, but it's only for a moment because then she turns back and the kitchen is empty again and she just makes herself a coffee. But as she takes the coffee towards the couch, we cut to a scene which clearly must have happened in the past where they are topless and in love and, well, one of them is. Yeah, one of them is. And also a little bit aggressive. Yeah, and so Camilla is going to say it's over, even though they were just happy like a second ago. But mm. no, now it's got to be over immediately. I think that, I do think that's a point there where it's like we're getting this idea, impression of Camilla kind of rubbing things in her face and treating her badly. Or at least this is maybe how Camilla remembers being treated badly. Wait, so are both people dreaming in your theory or is only Diane Sorry, I, I, I meant Diane, okay. how, how Diane was being treated. Sorry, even I'm getting messed around now with all the name changes. Yeah, I think this is how Diane sees herself being treated. Because as a viewer, you're like, yeah, Camilla's not a nice person, really. You know, she's treating her really badly. What did she expect? We as a viewer, though, we have just gotten this transition and we haven't gotten their backstory. We don't know anything really about these characters of Diane and Camilla. So it feels very rushed to me. And for you to say... Oh, she's treating her very terribly. I get that later. Yeah, we get I it later. I didn't really get it here. I didn't know what was going on. Mm. It felt very weird and just rushed. And like we're just being shoved in, in our face at this point. Diane is going to say, it's him, isn't it? Which I think we would all assume it's Adam because there's nobody else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who's it going to be? The giant thug from before? <laughs> or... Dan Hedaya? I mean, <laughs> and Mr. Roke in his brown kernel. Yeah. The only one that it could possibly be who seems to be an option would be adam yeah we're going to see adam giving notes to this actor with his arm around camilla and he's going to say oh you need to kiss her like this and then kisses her and kisses her while camilla says oh well can diane stay so diane stays to have to watch them make out yeah I guess. again that's the more fuel for the fire of being yeah treated, being it treated seems badly. very over the top though because then all is. the lights go out and they keep making out. I don't think this is how it would actually happen. Yeah. <laughs> because that you know, other you know, actor... goes on in Hollywood, man. The actor who's also getting notes is also standing there just having to in watch. In the dark, listening. 
We don't need to talk about that scene. Which one? Well, there's a scene where Diane's alone and crying. We don't really need to talk about that one. The phone is going to ring. Diane, the car is waiting. You need to go to 6980 Mulholland Drive. We fade to black. The Mulholland Drive, we see it flash up. The limo is driving at night. The car stops in a place that Diane is not expecting, which hints of what we had seen before, but there's no car crash this time. And no gun. Camilla is going to basically take her on a shortcut to the house where we are going to be at Adam's party. Coco happens to be Adam's mother. This is a very Lynch connection, but I like it. (laughs) It's very weird that she gives that same intro speech of just call me Coco. Everybody does. Coco also complains about being very hungry. So Diane apologizes for being late. Again, it's your fault. Diane and Camilla, their story is that they met on set. We're told that. And then it seems to me that Diane appears jealous of Camilla's success. Yep. Okay. Adam has this whole joke about his ex-wife getting the pool cleaner while he got the pool. So this tells me that this must have happened after the scene from before, correct? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So this is after the the cheating stuff. Yes, Yeah. okay. Melissa George, who we have no idea who she is now, comes in and kisses Camilla, like really kisses her. Yeah. This, I was totally confused by this one (laughs) because I thought if she's now Camilla, why are there two Camillas on the same screen? A bit confusing. We're going to see the cowboy walk out of the house. So we in the movie have now seen him twice. Yeah. Which makes me think that... Adam did what he was supposed to. Because I don't know why the cowboy is even here. He's only in the scene to walk out of the house. That's all he does. Yeah. Adam and Camilla are likely going to be married. They never say, oh, we're engaged. But they say, oh, we have an announcement. And then we just giggle about it. Yeah. Annoyingly. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go back to Winkies. The waitress is now called Betty. Yep. And that's a very David Lynch zoom in on the name tag because this is important. (laughs) she is going to be talking so it's joe and diane talking having coffee joe has the black book but again we don't know the importance of it she is again we're not told but we can definitely infer that she's hiring joe to kill camilla yep joe says that the blue key will be found as he told her when the job is finished right so that explains why we focused on the blue key before the dreamer from before just happens to be standing at the counter Diane asks about what what's this key for? Mm-hmm. What's and what's the importance of it? What where does it go? And Joe just laughs. Yeah, <laughs> we are now. She doesn't get it. Yeah, yeah. We're now going to see the hobo in the back has the blue box, puts it just randomly in a paper bag, and then our super creepy happy couple again. It's just our miniature tiny two inch people. They're, they're walking out, and then we're going to see them walking under Diane's door, and then they're going to be full size. There's knocking that's going on. Police lights seem to be coming in and flooding the place. There's screaming, which seems to be coming from Diane, but she's not always screaming when we're hearing it. And once the creepy couple becomes full size, she's backing up and kind of running backwards. She's going to get a gun that she happens to have in her bedside drawer shoot herself there's lots of smoke we see the hobo face we see a cityscape we see rita and betty happy from earlier in the movie 
we see the Silencio Theater. The blue-haired woman says Silencio credits. <clears throat> yeah, that's an accurate description of the end. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I remember I was waiting the whole movie for those little people because I remembered them. And I was like, when do they come in? When do they come in? It's like right at the end. I thought it was actually during the kind of really creepy, weird, awkward, angry, crying masturbation scene. But yeah, so they come in right at the, right at the very end. That really freaked me out the first time I saw it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's it. Lots of smoke, the end. Silencio, blue hair woman. Did you want to go more into your theory? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's talk about it. Yeah. So one thing we didn't talk about, though, is when that woman is either moving out from her apartment or taking her stuff because they've just swapped apartments. I'm not sure if they were actually also a couple, a couple her. as well. I don't think it matters. I think, again, that's just you can interpret that as she's a replacement for Camilla or she was is literally just I need to, I need your house. My house is much better. Let's swap apartments. But she mentions, oh, that's my ashtray. And then... You say that a lot. Is the ashtray really important to you? Well, it is to Lynch. Because why would you make such a big deal out of it? It's not the same ashtray as the Red Room ashtray. It's a different ashtray. But this is like a piano, yeah? And so she says, oh, that's my ashtray. She takes it. makes, And we make a big point of seeing this. But then in the next scene, there's another shot, like, close-up of this ashtray. And I've got no idea what that means. I don't either. And I didn't really pay attention this seemed like a superfluous detail. It probably isn't. To him, maybe it is important, but I... Yeah, I, I have no idea. I must, I'm guessing it is important. So, I think, yeah, everything everything is a dream. Nothing is real. She took out the hit on Camilla, and then the whole two detectives things is, like, uh, the, the, the little people crawling under the door, like you said, the police sirens, that was probably the detectives coming to arrest her for taking out the hit. And I think she's just, yeah, guilty and gone a bit nuts and crazy. And then this whole movie is just her imagining that Camilla's still alive. And and it's also about why she didn't get the parts. It's all her, I don't know, wrestling with fame in Hollywood, not becoming famous, just getting burnt out, losing her, uh, the girl that she cares about, who's always doing better than her, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I think this one's easier to explain than Lost Highway, at least. <laughs> I want to see it differently. And maybe that's why I don't like your theory as much. It's just, I think Dreams has been too much. I think that it's just been used too much. And I think that there could be something more here, especially coming from David Lynch. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. David Lynch clearly has an obsession or a passion for the idea of people with double identities or people that look alike, or twins, this comes up a lot. Yeah. Also, the idea of people becoming other people, transitioning, changing. And so, the way I interpret it is a bit different. That it's not so much a dream as opposed to a what-if scenario, possibly like parallel dimensions. Both Diane and Betty come from Canada and were relatively nobody. In the one we get at the end, clearly Ruth doesn't have a niece who showed up because the room is empty. I would like to think that it is something more along those lines or even something magical that happened that gave these people another chance at fixing their mistakes, but then they didn't. But then the timeline becomes very weird in this movie because what we are given for the first 80% of the movie is after 
the first 20%, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. We are seeing all the beginning time-wise at the end. And I do have a real problem with the timing then because of Camilla. Camilla is played by two different actors. This is a problem because why is Melissa George there if she's still Camilla? Do we have two of Camilla at the same time in this universe? Yeah, I don't know. I've, yeah, I can't even begin to unpackage that. <laughs> it's very weird. Adam's timeline is also very weird because what we've seen of Adam can't be the same. So Adam must have been, his whole timeline is told in order. Mm -hmm. Whereas our two female characters, only their story is 20% beginning at the end for us. For many of the other characters, apparently it's been all the way through because otherwise it makes no sense with the <laughs> with Gene Clean. Gene Clean, that scene is always going to be a problem for me, I think, in understanding this movie. Because of the whole affair and everything, well then, he meets Camilla after that. They fall in love. Mm -hmm. I don't know, there's just something about the timeline that I can't put my finger on, but it never seems to quite work because of Adam's story going in order, but everybody else's kind of not. I, I think I know what you mean. I think the the ending, like when they're at the engagement party, let's say, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And then that's, that is almost the beginning of the movie, really, I would say. Right. And that, that Camilla, I don't even know if that Camilla's real, the triangle girl. So I don't even know if she's real, if that's just a projection of her hatred for what's happened and stuff. And she's just imagining that. But basically, she sees them getting engaged. She's always first in line for the parts. She can never get the parts that she wants. And so, yeah, and so she takes out the hit on Camilla. And the blue key is like the, I guess, the calling card for the hitman. And so that's why he laughs at her when he's like, what does it open? It's like, it doesn't open anything. It's just a, it's a symbol of guilt almost, or a symbol of, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a symbol of whatever you want it to be, negative, something negative. And so when she gets that key... And that's why she traded apartments with that woman, I think, is because she doesn't want the police to find her. And so she's all ragged and like in her little dirty house coat and stuff. And so she's been hiding out from the cops because she knows what she's done. And then in her three months or I don't know how long she's been uh, alone, but basically in that time, she's been cracking under pressure and wondering if Camilla is dead, if the job's gone through. And then then the whole beginning part of the movie is just her reimagining her life or dreaming her life as how she wanted it to be. But even, yeah, like you said, even in her dreams, she can't get it right. Yeah, and I don't, I still don't think the dream theory works for me. I know that Lynch definitely, if you look at Twin Peaks, loves his dreams, but his dreams are much more typically allegory, prophetic. They're not really to be confused with reality. When he does dream sequences, especially when you look at Twin Peaks, people speak backwards. Everything is just so surreal that it can't possibly be reality. And this one isn't like that. This one is very much, it seems like this is meant to be reality. So I guess I'm I'm always going to lean away from that. I mean, and maybe it was supposed to be like that, maybe in the TV show, because I think I read on Wikipedia or IMDb or something, the way that he pitched it was, he showed them the pilot, and then they're like, well... Who is Rita and why is she in trouble? And his thing was, 
She's not in trouble. She is the trouble. And if you want to know more, then pay for the rest of the season, you know? And so, yeah. So maybe, maybe there was like a, a more drawn out and real story to this. Cause you got so many factors. You got a bag of money, a mystery key, a mystery woman with amnesia. And this, you, you have so many threads. But I like what he's done with this movie and put it all into one. But I think, and, and for me, it was the same with Lost Highway. Again, that was a movie about dreaming your perfect self as well. To you. Yeah. To me. I, I still. I think a lot of people agree yeah. with me though. Done that. I'm sure. I think it's the easy way. And oh, that's, that's a bit condescending. Oh, it is. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. is, yeah. But if you're going to say that, then pretty much everything Lynch does is going to rely on that. And maybe that's his thing. And then maybe that's why he refuses to talk about it. Because maybe he'll get, maybe he doesn't want to get called out for it, you know? He just wants people to interpret it how they want to interpret it, I think. I think that's his big thing. Is like, you take away from my work what you will. Possibly. But it's that whole thing of, I think a dream isn't, it's a solid way to do it. So I don't want to condescend it in that way. But I do think it's easy to just attribute these things to a dream. Because then we don't have to start connections. We don't really have to figure out the timelines or like you've got your one you found a very good point where you're like this is where the dream starts but do we fall asleep at that point do we see her fall asleep at the beginning i think when the the face goes on there's a very opening shot with the red bed and her face basically we are her going down onto the pillow the very opening shot is her going to sleep but when does she kill herself then or does she not after that i guess I, i mean that must come after i mean that's that must come at the end of the movie when she does kill herself. Okay. So you're saying she dreams it and then and she wakes suicide. up and commits suicide. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I think it's very solid. I mean, I'm not but saying I... a dream. It doesn't have to be an asleep dream. Maybe she's lying in bed. Maybe she's thinking it over. Maybe it's one of those things where people just can't get thoughts out of their head. I don't know. But like a dreamlike state, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Perhaps. And maybe I'm just trying to give Lynch the benefit of the doubt too much maybe i I, I, I just don't i don't like that kind of storytelling i think that there's more to it than just that even if there is even if there is oh it's a dream in a lynch piece i feel like there's still more to it there's something in the dream that has come out into the real world or something i would agree you know i mean but uh, that's where we're different though you seem to think that if something is a dream then it's lazy or it doesn't require as much thought because you don't have to piece things together. But I think that, yeah, if you do it badly, like the whole cliche, it was all a dream, right? That Yeah, that is lazy writing and that's bad. But when David Lynch does a dream, there's so much to unpackage and things do make sense and you can make connections and it's art in a way that, that it's open to multiple interpretations. And he gets a pass from me on the whole dream thing, I think, because I don't think he's being lazy. You know, does that make sense? Like... Yeah. His dreams are well done, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I would say that. I just, I think it's the whole thing for me. When you say it's a dream, the dream doesn't matter. For me, what what actually happened to the characters matters, unless the dream is actually going to affect something that happens later. But if it's like this case, the dream happens just before she dies. It doesn't affect anything. Yeah. And and maybe that's, again, if you're going to want to go further and analyze it, then, well, then... What is the real story then? And what is the real story about? You know, it's, it, you could take it as a, I mean, I'm just pulling stuff out of my butt right now, but I mean, it could be a movie about, yeah, about 
Hollywood and what you were talking about with um, Sunset Boulevard. I think that those themes are very much in here. And I think that in some ways... Like Hollywood chewing you up and spitting you out kind of I thing. I think that's what I take more from the movie than anything else. And the way that directors are forced into doing things by their producers right. that they wouldn't normally want to do. And how even more fitting, now that you've told me the backstory of it being a pilot originally, that this movie in probably many respects does reflect how he felt because of the situation that happened to the pilot. I was thinking that as well, because I was thinking the way that they phrased it in IMDb was the ABC producer, basically he watched the pilot. I can't remember. It was something like he watched the pilot in his bathrobe, standing up, drinking a coffee. And I was wondering, did Lynch put that coffee scene in because of that? But in the pilot, it's all it, that that scene is all, also in there. So I was like, ah, damn! I thought that was be like a little bit of a dig at this guy, but now nah, it was the scene was already there. But yeah, it's it's almost like what's the opposite of a love letter to Hollywood? What would it be? An angry letter? Yeah, yeah, a hate mail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think this is just one of those that you and I are always going to disagree on, and that's okay. I think that's fine, especially for a movie like Lynch, because. Like we just talked about, even he himself says, there's not just one way to watch my movies. You do what you want with them. Gaps filled and more gaps created. Next time. Today we are going to discuss a game called Minute. I got through this real quick. Well, not, yeah. not quick, but on a very low percentage rate of finishing. Conceit of the game is that, like the name, Minute, even though it's not spelled the same, it is spelled M-I-N-I-T, you have one minute to play. And I remember just being able to take over that controller. Hogging the machine. Get away, kids. I'm playing <laughs> <Yes>. this. <laughs> I gotta find the warring can. Only starts once you pick up the cursed sword. Yeah. <laughs> All this and more on the next episode of Filling in the Gaps.